There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. There is an old African proverb that says, if there is no enemy within, the enemy outside can do us no harm. There is no enemy within, the enemy outside can do us no harm. And the idea here is that the biggest threat always comes from inside. Those who often are able to do the most damage to anything, whether it is a business or a team, family, a church, are those who are actually inside, who are actually a part of that organization or organism. Enemies and dangers are clearly oftentimes marked out on the outside. They are clearly identifiable. But the greatest threat often comes from those working on the inside, as most of us have heard of the term, an inside job. An inside job is a crime that is perpetrated by or with the help of a person working for or trusted by the victim. Banks and stores are always on guard against this. And indeed, the Apostle Paul warned the Galatians against this as well. An inside job. You remember last week that we quoted uh, Philip Riken when he said, the most dangerous teachers are those who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. And this was the case, remember, in the churches in Galatia. When, when Paul wrote to them, they were being deceived. They were being beguiled by those who were coming in looking like preachers, acting like Christians, sounding like Christians, using some of the same Christian words, but were not preaching the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. They were wolves, as it were, in sheep clothing. Beloved, I want us to understand this morning that the greatest threat to the church is not the homosexual lobby and government-sanctioned same-sex marriage. The greatest threat to the church are not the abortionists and the government-sanctioned abortion mills. The greatest threat to the church is not Islam in all of its radical and militant forms. The greatest threat to the church has been and always will be false teachers. Those who rise up from within the church and undermine 
the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul warned the Ephesians, the churches in Ephesus, before he left in Acts chapter 20. After his many years, his, his few years of ministering there, he warned them that the biggest threat to the church has been and continues to be false teachers and preachers who come in and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells them in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 29, I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise up men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. That's what he warned them about. He didn't warn them about the government and what the government was doing. He didn't warn them about all of these isms out in the world. He says, what's going to happen is that false teachers are going to rise up in the church, calling themselves Christians, perverting the gospel, and leading men and women away from the truth. From among yourselves this will happen. He didn't only warn them in Ephesus. Now he's, he's dealing with it here in the church of Galatia. The churches that are gathered in that province. After Paul's fruitful ministry among the churches in Galatia, indeed, the very thing that he warned the Ephesians about, others have come in behind him telling these young churches that Paul had the gospel, but he didn't have the full gospel. The full gospel. Isn't that interesting? I find that interesting because there are churches today who, 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 who run out and establish themselves under the banner that they are quote-unquote full gospel churches. Perhaps some of you are familiar with them. Perhaps some of you have come out of those churches. Perhaps some of you are actively involved in some of those churches. Remember what we said last week. If there's ever an adjective in front of the word gospel in describing the gospel that people are preaching, it's a good bet that there's something wrong with that gospel. Because you do understand that those who say they are quote-unquote full gospel churches, the insinuation there is that others may have the gospel, but they don't have it fully. And like the social gospel, as we talked about last week, like the prosperity gospel, like the self-esteem gospel, the quote-unquote full gospel suggests Jesus plus something. Jesus plus the spiritual gifts. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus 
the manifestation of Holy Spirit. Jesus plus. But let us be clear this morning, even from our text, Paul wanted the churches in Galatia to know and wants us to know, too, that there is no such thing as the full gospel. There is only the gospel. And remember how we defined it last week. We defined the gospel as this. The gospel is the good news that God, through Jesus Christ alone, has redeemed us from our sin and made us right with God. In fact, the Bible wants us to understand that not only is there only one gospel, but the other Gospels are not harmless. They are not harmless. In fact, we'll see today that preaching like ideas has consequences. And so do the Gospel that is preached. Last time we saw in the beginning of this passage that Paul was astonished, wasn't he? He was amazed. He had this apostolic amazement because the Galatians so quickly and so easily turned away from God. And they turned away from the gospel to another, a different gospel, which Paul reminded them and reminds us that there really is no other gospel. And this week we pick up again at this astonishment and we see, we see how serious this issue is. We see how serious it is that not only is Paul amazed, but this week we will see that his amazement led him to pronounce this apostolic curse or anathema and then to remind the churches of his apostolic approval. This idea of this apostolic curse. Notice what the Bible says here in, in verse 7. It says in verse 7, but there are some who trouble you. Now, these some that he's speaking about, these are the Judaizers. These are those who were coming in and teaching Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. Jesus plus Jewish Old Testament ritual, Jesus plus. And notice what Paul says. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They were distorting the gospel, he says. The, the word there means changing, but not just changing. It means perverting. They were perverting the gospel of Christ. Perverted preachers preaching a perverted gospel troubling the people of God. Sounds familiar. But notice, notice what the Apostle Paul said. He doesn't just say, well, you, you shouldn't just listen to him. He doesn't say, well, you know they're wrong, but you, you just shouldn't listen to him. He doesn't say, well, you know they mean well, they just got some things confused. He doesn't say, well, I know they're sincere, but, you know, we don't believe like they do, and that's all right. People can have different beliefs about these things. 
He doesn't say that, beloved. He pronounces them as false teachers and he pronounces a curse upon them. Notice what he says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. He pronounces this curse. The Greek word there is an important word. It says anathema. Anathema. It means condemned. It means damned. It means devoted to God for destruction. The New English translation actually is even more graphic when you read it. It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned to hell. Let him be condemned to hell. This idea of being devoted to God and, and being accursed and being condemned is, is, is an idea that was prevalent in the Old Testament. You see it on several occasions. One in particular is found in Joshua chapter 6 and, and verse 17. Where there, God has told Joshua to go and take Jericho. Because Jericho is going to be destroyed. And the whole city is to be devoted to God for destruction. Notice what it says in verse 17 of chapter 6 of Joshua. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That's that idea. It shall be accursed. It shall be condemned. It shall be anathema. But this just isn't an Old Testament reality, beloved. This is picked up in the New Testament because our God is the same. He never changes. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 3 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22, you hear these these words. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If you don't love the Lord, let him be condemned. And so you should see here that Paul isn't mincing words, beloved. This is a serious matter as he speaks this apostolic curse. He's not mincing words. And you see that he's not mincing words because of the way that he said it. He spoke this without hesitation. He spoke this without exception. And he spoke this without excuse. He spoke it without hesitation. But you see that he doesn't miss words. And this is interesting for us because this is not normal for the Apostle Paul. If you read the Apostle Paul and you read the tenor of his letters and what he is often saying to people, people like to say that uh, the Apostle John is the Apostle of love. 
But you know, you can make a very strong case that Paul is actually the apostle of love. But even if you don't want to refer to him as the apostle of love out of respect for the apostle John, you can say for sure that the apostle Paul is the apostle of unity. He's the apostle of unity because over and over again you read in his epistles, in his letters to the churches, a call for this unity in Jesus. Now put aside your differences. And put aside your preferences. He tells the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 4 and, and verse 2, you know, y'all just ought to get along with one another. Stop the bickering. He says in Romans chapter 12 and, and verse 10 that we ought to go out of our way to outdo one another in showing honor and love and service to one another. This is the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13 that if eating meat offends my brother, then I will never eat meat because the last thing I want to do is to offend somebody. I don't want to offend. And if just eating meat offends another, Paul says, I'll, I'll just never eat meat. And you read this and all of the one another passages in Paul's epistles. Love one another. Encourage one another. Sing songs to one another. Serve one another. Admonish one another. Pray for one another. All these one another ideas. What costs the Apostle Paul in light of his general disposition to on this occasion speak words that are so vehement. What caused him and what moved him to make such a seemingly harsh statement that if anyone is preaching another gospel let them be damned. Because, beloved, of what was at stake. What was at stake. Understand, for Paul, the gospel was at stake. This isn't an issue of whether or not we're going to eat beef or pork or be vegetarians. Paul says the gospel is at stake and he doesn't hesitate to make this pronouncement of a curse because the truth of the gospel is at stake. This is no light matter. I know we like to sit around and debate, you know, theological minutia. Whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial whether you should be speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues, or whether we should sing in churches hymns or, or choruses or just the songs. Paul 
here is not interested in a debate over theological minutiae. The curse is not an issue of matters that are only temporary and incidental. Like whether or not we should have instruments in music or if we should have a guitar or just a piano. Or whether or not you should be wearing a tie or the women should be wearing dresses. These are not, this is not simple, theological, momentary, insignificant discussions. This, Paul says, gets to the heart of the matter. It gets to the reason that Jesus was born. It gets to the reason that he lived. It gets to the reason that he died. It gets to the reason that he has been raised again from the dead. It gets to the heart of the gospel. It gets to the matter of the truth and the integrity of God. Because God has told us that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. And there is only one name given among men and women whereby they can be saved. And it is Jesus. And it is Jesus alone. We lose the gospel. Remember, we lose the church. And that's why Paul pronounces this curse, because not only is the gospel at stake, but the church is at stake. The church itself. And he doesn't hesitate to pronounce this this, this, this curse because this again is no light matter. The church stands or falls upon the finished work of Christ. Christ said himself in Matthew chapter 16, did he not, that I will build my church. And that is what he is doing. He has been doing and he is doing building his church upon himself. And the truth of the testimony that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you take away the gospel from the church, you take Christ away. And where there is no Christ, there is no church. And therefore, beloved, there is no salvation. Because not only is the gospel at stake, and not only is the church at stake, and Paul wants them to know and understand the seriousness of this is that your soul is at stake. We are talking about eternal matters. Beloved, if you believe the gospel, you are saved. But if you don't believe the gospel, if you distort the gospel, if you pervert the gospel, if you disown the gospel, then you are lost. 
This has serious and eternal consequences. The souls of the sheep are at stake. But you know what false teachers do, don't you? They fleece the flock. That is one way you can identify it. Because ultimately what they want to do is to fleece the flock. They want to take advantage of the sheep. They want to build themselves up on the backs of the sheep. They want to get rich off of the flock. Paul says, these false teachers are going to hell. And their desire is to take others with them. Paul says, don't you be deceived. He preaches it without hesitation, doesn't he? He doesn't hesitate. But you know what? He doesn't hesitate. And in not hesitating, he speaks it without exception. There's no exceptions to this, he says. Notice, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, even if we, the apostles or the angels, preach to you a gospel contrary to the one true gospel which you received and by which you have been saved. Doesn't matter whether it's an angel or an apostle. Condemn anyone who preaches anything but Christ. That's what he says. Condemn anyone who preaches anything but Jesus. His title doesn't matter. He can call himself an apostle all he wants to. Paul says, my title doesn't matter. I walk in the church and proclaim myself an apostle. You should say, I don't care. What do you believe about Jesus? Your title means nothing. Not only does your title mean nothing, but where you come from means nothing. Even if it is an angel claiming to come down from heaven, saying, I got a revelation from God, you tell the angel, tell me about Jesus. You know, people have seen angels. It's a whole church established out there in Utah. They call themselves the Church of the Latter-day Saints. You know them as the nice young men riding around on bicycles with white shirts and black ties with name tags knocking on your door. They're Mormons. And they started because a young man named Joseph Smith went out into the woods and talked to an angel who revealed to him revelation contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And if he was truly a follower of Christ, when the, when the angel began talking, he should have told the angel, go to hell. Because there is only one gospel. There is only one Jesus. And you don't know him. It's a serious and Paul is not mincing words. He is not plain. He speaks it without hesitation. He speaks it without exception. And he speaks it without excuse. Notice how he repeats it in verse 9. As we said as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He repeats it. He reminds the Galatians that they have heard this before. You know these things. You are without excuse here. You have received the gospel. If you are saved you have received it. I was in your midst. I know that I taught it. You know the truth. I don't miss this, beloved. Don't miss this. Because this is important to understand. That, that, that in the end, there will be no excuse for believing error. At the judgment... There will be no excuse for believing error. You have the word of God. Yes, James tells us in James chapter 3 that those who teach will be held to a higher level of accountability. But so too will those who tolerate bad and erroneous and perverted teaching. Those who tolerate a perverted gospel. God says in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 31, speaking to the nation of Israel, he says, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their own direction, but my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the ends come? You got these false prophets, you got these false priests, and the reason you got them is because you want them. But in the end, there will be no excuses. The false priests, the false prophets will be judged, and those who tolerated them and went along with them will be judged as well. Paul says, listen, you know this. You, you, you've received it. You are without excuse here. So I'm just going to tell you again. As we've said before. If anyone, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one. And the one you received, let them be Damn. Now, this is serious. And Paul isn't mincing words. 
He spoke this curse without hesitation, didn't He? He spoke this curse without exception. He spoke this curse without excuse. And this apostolic curse, beloved, is a strong one, considering the fact that those who were coming in amongst the Galatians were trying to undermine the very apostleship and the truth that Paul had spoken to them. And that led Paul to assert his own apostolic approval. Doesn't it? The seriousness of the gospel, beloved, is, is seen not only in the curse that is pronounced upon those who pervert it, but also that nothing else matters. For the Apostle Paul, nothing else matters. It's the gospel of God. He understood what many of us don't understand, and that is it is not about us. It is not about me. It is not about you. It is about God. For he says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or the approval of God? If I was still seeking or still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here Paul gets down to the real ground level of it. He says, listen, I don't care what you think about me. What do you believe about Jesus? That's not about me. That's when I come to you, I'm not seeking your approval. I'm not trying to please you. I'm a servant of Christ. Now, understand, beloved, that pleasing others is not in and of itself a bad thing. Paul, if you would go and read the life of Paul and read the ministry of Paul, Paul seems to be a fairly friendly guy. I mean, he seems to have gotten along with quite a few People, you see during his ministry and, and throughout his ministry, people are following him, people are gravitating to him. You read at the end of his epistles, he had these long list of friends. He's not a bad guy. He seems to be able to get along with people. He has friends. And yet here in Galatians, Paul was not trying to win friends or influence people in that regard. Now, most of us like to be liked. I understand that. I like to be liked. Quiet is kept. Every preacher you know, he's got a you know, little self-esteem problem. He want to be liked. That's why he went into preaching. <laughs> Wants people to like him. And we are by nature people pleasers. We are. 
And we are by nature people pleasers. We start with our parents. The little kids want to please their parents, move on to their teachers. Kids want to please their teachers, move on to their friends and associates. People want to please their friends and associates, move on to our spouses. We want to please our spouses, at least we should. And it moves on then to our children. We want our children to think well of us our whole lives are spent in one respect or another seeking to please people. In fact, there's really nothing wrong with being liked. And the old King James says in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24, doesn't a man who has friends must what? Show himself friendly. And yet, the Bible also reminds us, doesn't it, in the Proverbs 29 and 25, that the fear of man is a snare. It's one thing to want to please those around us. It's another thing altogether to be a people pleaser. It's another thing to be fearing man rather than fearing God. It's another thing to live our lives seeking to please people around us rather than seeking the pleasure of God. Because you can't fear others, beloved, and serve God at the same time. You can't. And so this is what Paul says to them. You know, when I was amongst you, we were friendly. I liked you guys, and you guys liked me. We got along well. I considered you my friends. Well, Paul says, I am not afraid to lose friendship if it comes at the stake of the gospel. I am not afraid to lose friendship if my soul is at stake. Because the issue, beloved, is not friendship. The issue is faithfulness. You ever wonder why the Bible tells us very clearly that we are not to be unequally yoked together? Particularly those of us who are in relationships, seeking to further relationships on into marriage. The Bible tells us 2 Corinthians chapter 6, doesn't it, in verse 14, that we are not to be bound together, particularly in marriage, with unbelievers. Why? Because you will spend your days seeking to please an ungodly person as opposed to pleasing God. You yoke yourself to a godly man. You yoke yourself to a godly woman. Both of you have the same agenda, and that is the pleasure of God. This is why the Bible tells you, and those of you who are single here this morning, hear it clearly. Hear the word of God clearly to you. Do not 
bind yourself to an unbelieving person. No matter how nice, no matter how friendly, no matter how pretty, suave, or debonair. The agenda is not friendship. The agenda is faithfulness. The agenda is not pleasing others. First and foremost, the agenda is pleasing God. And Paul's desire above all else was this, beloved. It was a desire to glorify Christ. Notice what he said. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I, will not be, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's pleasing Christ was his utmost desire. Notice, notice how he refers to himself. He calls himself a servant of Christ. The word there is doulos. It actually literally means slave. I am a slave of Jesus. Do you understand that the goal and the aim of the servant is simply this? Faithfulness. It's all a servant wants. And so you understand that Paul's goal was not decisions for Christ. He wasn't going around simply trying to get people to confess Jesus by any means necessary, at any cost. He wasn't simply trying to fill the pews in the churches. Because his goal was not just to get people to sign on the dotted line, to come forward and give them his hand. His goal was to be found faithful. Having proclaimed the truth of Christ, having set before the people the realities of salvation only in Jesus and Jesus alone. Desire was to be found faithful in Christ. Faithful proclamation of the gospel. That was his calling. Because you do know the only thing that the servant wants to hear is what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. That's all. That's the goal. That's the aim of the servant. The slave of Christ doesn't aspire to be rich. The slave of Christ doesn't aspire to be popular or powerful or influential. The servant of Christ only aspires to be faithful. That's it. And Paul said, I once tried the other. Did you get that in there? He said, am I still trying to please man? Because at one time he was. And where did that get him? Where did that get him? Self-righteousness? A road to hell that many of his friends were on? But now through the grace 
the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, I am no longer a servant of others. I am no longer self-serving. I am now a servant of Christ. And it is only his approval that I seek. Beloved, again, this is, this is serious. This should be a sober reminder to us as those who have been called into Christ that every day you must choose faithfulness. Above all, choose faithfulness. Listen for faithfulness. Follow after faithfulness. Faithfulness to the proclamation of the gospel. Faithfulness to the person and work of Christ. Faithfulness to the truth of God found in the scriptures. Faithfulness. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Don't get distracted by secondary issues. This is what Paul is trying to tell him. I'm not talking about these secondary issues that you young men want to stay up all night and debate about. I'm not talking about that. Don't get distracted. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the person and work of Christ. You choose faithfulness over friendships because the gospel is at stake. You choose faithfulness over friendships because the church of Jesus Christ is at stake. If you lose the gospel, beloved, you lose Christ. And if you lose Christ, you lose the church. You choose faithfulness over friendships because your soul is at stake. Faithfulness to Christ is our first and foremost calling. That's why we trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Don't let anyone deter you from it. There is nothing else. Anyone who comes in your life and would have influence upon your life, make sure it is they who are pointing you further along to faithfulness in Jesus. Your soul is at stake, beloved. That's why it's important that every day you make sure that you're trusting Jesus and Jesus only. Not Jesus plus. Jesus only. Because, beloved, the songwriter said, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Why? Because all other ground, this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Everything else is sinking. Everything else is stinking. 
everything else will perish. And all those who are trusting in it will perish with them. And Christ alone has all other ground is sinking, sinking sand. Oh, I pray this morning, I do pray, that you see the soberness and the seriousness of Paul's admonition to the Galatians and that we would hear it as well and know we serve a faithful Christ and He is sufficient. Trust in Him and Him alone. Let us pray.